I was born and raised in India. And growing up, I saw a lot of water issues in my own household. We only had piped water delivered. Like you could open the tap and you would have uh, water to drink just for an hour a day. And that was in a middle class household. You went to the slums, you saw you know, hundreds of people gathered around uh, a hand pump trying to get water and trying to carry all that water home. So growing up, I had an acute sense of water being something fundamental to life and the fact that so many of us have access to it, but many more probably do not. Siddhartha Roy is a 34-year-old environmental engineer. He knows all too well that issues of water equity aren't limited to developing countries like India. They're also a reality in his new home, the U.S. In 2015, Siddhartha was part of a team that helped expose the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. His TED Talk about it, Science in Service to the Public Good, has been viewed over a million times. Fresh out of college, I went to work for a consulting firm. During orientation, the leaders dished out advice. Be easy to manage. I told myself, yes, I will do everything I'm told. I will be easy to manage. It wasn't until I arrived in graduate school and witnessed firsthand the criminal actions of scientists and engineers in the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, that I realized how dangerous and yet surprisingly common this line of thinking really is. Siddhartha is hard at work at not being easy to manage. He's now a research scientist at the University of North Carolina's Water Institute, where he is still an outspoken advocate for equitable public health and environmental justice. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lives of the Next 50. I'm your host, Ken Stern. Today we continue our series featuring leaders in their 20s and 30s. They tell us what they've learned from previous generations, how they work to improve this world they've inherited, and how they imagine their supersized futures will unfold. I asked Siddhartha about his family and the impact they had on his moral perspective. My parents, both of them, they grew up in, in abject poverty. But my family on both sides had a deep love for learning uh, especially my father, um, the son of a maid, went on to get a PhD, and he did everything in his power to make sure my sister and I were educated, and he would come home from the office every day and spend two, three, four hours helping us with homework all our lives until we said, stop, I think we've got this. My mother on the other side, she, uh, I think she's the epitome of compassion. If you tell her of somebody who's struggling I think she actually feels their pain. And fundamentally, she's driven to help people in need. Um, I take zero credit for how I think. I think it was my parents. It was also growing up in India and, you know, not, not having a lot. And, you know, <laughs> you, you think about the slums you walk through uh, on the one hand and then going to California and walking around the mansions and you realize the huge gap that exists among humanity. And you try to think of ways you can make the lives of the vulnerable better. I mean, the Romans had clean water, right? They knew how to do it 2,000 years ago. Walk us through why 2,000 years on, it's still a struggle for us in places like Flint and presumably a lot of other places. There are serious challenges as these cities get older and we don't pump enough money and resources into fixing these problems. A lot of the U.S. was built in the late 1800s, early 1900s. 
uh, the, the pipes that were put in the ground uh, had a life of, say, 50 or so years, uh, many of them. I mean, if you dig up some of these old pipes, there were pipes that were like 150 years old. So even though, um, you know, we have the knowledge now that, okay, well, you have old infrastructure that needs to be replaced and maintained, you also have old infrastructure that is possibly harmful, possibly toxic lead pipes, which was the case in Flint, Michigan. And, you know, it's still it's true in many other cities. The fact that we have anywhere from six to 10 million lead pipes in this country. And, and so, you know, despite the fact that the Romans you know, knew how to you know, pump and treat water. The pipes in the ground that are made of lead are supplying water. And so you're essentially pumping water through a toxic lead straw. So as long as the pipes are in the ground, they pose a risk. Even in a first world country, you get the water that you pay for. Take us to Flint for a moment and talk to me a little bit about how you got there. Where were you in your stage of life and how did you get involved with Flint? Yeah, well, um, I was a lowly graduate student at Virginia Tech and <laughs> I was I was doing research on, on pipes and on understanding these complex corrosion mechanisms and a concerned mother in Flint, Leanne Walters, uh, she contacted my advisor, uh, Mark Edwards. Turns out, you know, one of her twins had lead poisoning and uh, the city she lived in, Flint, had switched their water source about a year ago. And uh, they were, the city and state officials were insisting, yeah, the water looks brown, it tastes bad, but it, it is safe to drink. Uh, but Leanne, you know, you know, not convinced, looked elsewhere. So, you know, Mark took all of us graduate students out for pizza first. He fed us pizza first, so he, he could bribe us. Well, he, that's what... he, he, he buttered you up. <laughs> Or pizza you Yes. Are. I mean, you know, there's college students. That's all that matters to us. And, you know, <laughs> as we were having lunch, he laid out this complex problem of a city that was not following federal law and the fact that, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of people were potentially being exposed to lead and had health problems. And he was planning this, you know, huge sampling program in Flint and asked if all of us wanted to help. And we all said yes. So, so you're now full of pizza. Uh, Mark has dropped the bomb on you that he's launching a major project in Flint and you're along for the ride. So what happens? So it was, it was 16 hour days of uh, undergraduate and graduate students working around the clock, you know, analyzing samples as they came back. You had resident volunteers essentially doing the same 16, 18 hour days, driving around town, recruiting residents to do this sampling. And you combine that with all these protests that were already going on in Flint of residents going to city council meetings with jugs of, you know, brown water with, uh, chunks of hair that that they said were falling off from their head uh, it was it was glorious to watch the citizens you know and, re and scientists working to do this citywide sampling and it paid dividends you know the stance from the local government from the state of michigan was that the water was safe to drink and we could not understand how that could be given you had all these high levels of lead you know, Leanne's house is a great example. Her, um, the average lead at her tap was about 2,000 parts per billion. Uh, EPA's action level is 15.15. I think the highest in Leanne's house was, was like 13,000 parts per billion. <laughs> and 5,000 is 
what is classified as hazardous waste, something you'd find at a mining site. So you had essentially hazardous levels of lead coming out of her tap, and the city kept insisting everything was fine. Within a few weeks of us posting our results online, uh, you had congressional you know, questions. Uh, a local pediatrician looked at blood lead data of children and, and figured out that, oh, indeed, after the switch, uh, you know, the proportion of children with elevated blood lead had doubled. And so all this evidence uh, that residents collected pushed the city and the state to acknowledge the problem and, and switch back to their, the original water source from Detroit. When I was reading about this story uh, and sort of uh, reliving it, it also reminded me of the movie Aaron Brockovich. Do you know that movie? <laughs> yes, I do. Did you all feel like Aaron Brockovich uh, fighting the, the, the powers that be and, and winning as she did? Uh, quite the opposite. When we first started putting out information, we had city and state officials attacking us. You know, there are reports, uh, published reports, where the spokesperson of the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality called us lead magicians. We go to towns and we pull the lead rabbit out of the hat. And Mark was used to this because he, you know, he had fought government agencies before. For me personally, I couldn't sleep. Um, you know, I would go out running at 2 a.m. because I did not know what to do. Because here we were trying to present data and, and the response from the government science agency is not to say, okay, let's compare notes. You might have something. It was to attack us and call us essentially liars. So, no, um, Aaron Brockovich is not the right analogy here. Yeah, especially as a, a young scientist, it must have been hard to see other scientists attack you. That's a very strange thing to be a data-driven scientist and then be attacked for what you're what, what you're finding. You're right. You know, as scientists, our role is to tell the truth the best we can. Early on, it was the fact that Flint had a serious lead problem. Two years later, the water quality is improving. So you're you are as a scientist forced to confess. The data shows things are getting better. Then we were attacked by you know, activists and, and other people who felt that we were minimizing the crisis um, because now we were being paid by EPA to do testing. Now that things are better, now you think you know, the federal government has bought us. We had attacks on Twitter. We were attacked on Facebook. Um, we were at <laughs> So I, I think everyone should be attacked on Twitter a little bit. So to get a sense of how uncomfortable it feels to be calling names, I went through this. And the first two years, I was a, a mess. Uh, my mental health was down the drain. And it got worse from there. Things really boiled over when Sid's advisor, Mark Edwards, clashed publicly with a superhero. We had Mark Ruffalo come to town um, with his nonprofit, and he and his team scared residents into thinking the water had, you know, horrible other chemicals um, at alarming rates. You should not be bathing and showering. His team had made this. Uh, weird green-looking pom-pom, and they would throw this into bathtubs. It would absorb chemicals from the air and the water, and then he would send these pom-poms to a lab, and then the resident would receive like a 90-page report of like hundreds of chemicals that they found, no context of what that means. Now he was scaring residents for no reason with, with no data. It was bonkers. 
So we had to fight Mark Ruffalo. We had to fight the Hulk. And well, the data shows Flint's water is actually pretty good now. So we now have a national conversation on what it what it means to have safe water. We have an infrastructure bill that has a lot billions and billions being poured in for lead pipe replacements and 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 focus on a variety of contaminants that hurt Americans. So you know, I think Flint was catalytic in in getting all of us to think about water seriously. Yeah, so a triumph that uh, you and your colleagues helped save lives, and as you now moved to UNC and and start the next chapter of your professional career. How has that experience in Flint shaped what you want to accomplish with your career? Where do you think you can make the most effective change, perhaps without uh, losing your mind to social media? When I applied to graduate school, I wrote in my personal statement, you know, I want to save the world, help the world, something you would hear Miss America say. But meaning it completely deep down in my heart, you know, one in four people on the planet still don't have access to safe water. There's so much to do. And it's such purposeful, meaningful work that needs good expertise. So the move to UNC is kind of deliberate in that I'd like to do this in developing countries. You know, again, coming from India, I see a lot of you know, challenges, but a lot of potential. And so this role is looking at potential uh, water lead exposure in Ghana from hand pumps and, and other water sources. So very, very excited to take this domestic experience international. But the, the venom and just the sheer quantity of attacks on social media, I'm, I'm sad to say they have an effect. They have kind of made me wary of, of which projects to take. Now, that doesn't mean I will not do serious, risky projects. Uh, that probably means I will not read social media uh, while doing those risky projects. But yeah, more generally focused on trying to create a more scientifically literate public. I, I, I love writing op-eds. I love uh, making videos. I will fundamentally believe many of us should be doing more. So we have a scientifically literate public uh, who understands what is at stake. So I'm curious, your focus on science communication and engaging with the public and trying to educate them as to how to use data and how to respect data. Is the challenge of the internet age making it harder or or is it a better opportunity for scientists like you to educate the public about science? Well, first off, the internet age is a boom. So many of us who grew up in the internet age um, have access to information, to people, to the scientific literature in a way our predecessors really did not. It's a bane in that now you have this gigantic task of trying to sift through and gather what is important. And so I think that is where uh, the role of, of proper mentorship, the role of good education is important, both formally when you go to school, but also informally in, in the kinds of opinion pieces you read or the conversations, the podcasts you hear. We have an unprecedented opportunity to create uh, good experts and and scientifically literate people who who understand issues better than our predecessors. I think deep down, this access to more information and really smart people is a good thing. Uh, as many of us 
think seriously about long-termism and issues that face humanity. We talk a lot more about climate change, water quality issues, AI, international conversations of this kind probably did not happen before. And when they did, they were restricted to very few people. And that makes me optimistic for the future. Do you ever wonder about how your own grandchildren, 70 years from now, life might be uh, different from yours? And what would you want for them? 70 years forward, I do not know what the future would look like. However, I I would like uh, a few things for, for my grandchildren. I would like my grandchildren to live in a world where water is a human right. I would like that, you know, come 2090, almost everyone has access to safe water. I would like uh, them to be scientifically more literate in being able to understand the world better if, if they are to participate in it, to understand what numbers mean, to understand what trends mean. But also, it's, it's their inner life that I care about a lot. I would like for them to be psychologically stable. I, would, <laughs> I hope they, deep down, they're leading meaningful lives. Hopefully, we have a culture which values uh, in our lives even more than we do now. We always close this with this following question. You know, the pharaohs, at least by reputation, used to be asked to be buried with some items of value that they wanted to carry with them to the afterlife. What would you want to be buried with that would take you into the next life? I have the unfortunate luck of being an atheist. Um, and so I know I'm not going anywhere. However, <laughs> um, I am a big fan of ritual. So, but that's okay. We'll assume things I carry with me will, will follow me into the afterlife. I think one item of each of my loved ones. Um, I lost my father last year at, during the pandemic um, at the height of the second wave. Um, and I wasn't there. Um, <clears throat> I I got there, but it was too late. Um, all I have of him is is good memories and um, his glasses. <clears throat> so I think uh, at least one item of everyone I love, um, and a, a thumb drive with all the memories. That's water engineer Siddhartha Roy. You can learn more about his work and philosophies at siddhartharoy.org. In our next and final episode of Century Lives and Next 50, we discuss how to make the trillion devices of the Internet of Things sustainable. Look for that episode in two weeks. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson and Aaron Bump. Music for this episode was provided by Door. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Support comes from the James A. Johnson Longevity Prize for Excellence in Media, recognizing journalism and entertainment that addresses the dramatic increase in life expectancy in the last century. I'm Ken Stern. Thanks for listening.